Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. This week is part five of our six-part Charles Manson and the Manson Family Murders series. And Caroline, this is, as I understand, where things are going to get really grim. Oh, yeah. Yeah, these, I mean, these are it. But before we get into the climactic murders that Charlie Manson and his family are most known for, we do need to meet the victims of those crimes who often have had their lives overshadowed by their brutal deaths. So I really think context, uh, especially this context, is important because these murders aren't just about the family massacring a bunch of names. They're real people with real lives and loves, and they deserve to be known. And I think we like to bring that element into true crime stories as often as we can. Absolutely. So we will spend the most time with the first five victims in this spree, and we will begin with their stories and their tragic ends this week. Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Wojciech Frykowski, Abigail Folger, and Stephen Parent. So first, there's Sharon Tate. Now, Sean, aside from being a unfortunately famous murder victim, do you know anything about Sharon Tate? Uh, she was an actor. She was on kind of the up-and-coming um, Hollywood starlet radar. Mm -hmm. uh, she got married to Rowan Polanski, who I think directed something she was in. Mm -hmm. Um that happens from time to time, as as people may know. Uh, she got pregnant with his child. Um, not that that's a scandal or anything, uh, uh, even back then, because I, th I think they were married again. Um, but it is a relevant detail, because she was pregnant when she was murdered by mm. Tex Avery. Not Tex Avery. <laughs> <laughs> Don't as cast aspersions <laughs> on Tex Avery. We'll get there in all due time. But yes, Sharon was the most famous of all of the family's victims. Uh, she was born in Houston to a high-ranking military intelligence officer and soon blossomed into a gorgeous young woman with long, honey-blonde hair and uh, gams for days, as they would say. She had the kind of beauty that made people nervous, like they simply didn't know what to do with the person that was in front of them. She was just so striking. And... Very much like Margot Robbie is now. So she was a great choice to cast as Sharon in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm -hmm. uh, the film, because it's just sort of this like, I don't know, this image of beauty, like the, the long blonde hair. And, you know, it's just very much like, oh, she's Barbie, pretty much. Mm -hmm. But she was also uh, good hearted and she was kind. And that would make those initially too nervous to talk to her, press ahead and try to get to know her. And it wasn't easy. Sort of a girl next door effect? Yes. But um, her father, Colonel Paul Tate, was an intimidating man. and well, he's the colonel. And in order to go out with Sharon, her suitors had to please Paul. Does that sound familiar, Sean? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'll let you know when I start. <laughs> and Sharon loved her father, but he was strict and impossible to please. And her daughter's love was mixed with a, a fear of failing. It was a trend that would follow her throughout many relationships in her life. After dating West Side Story actor Richard Bamer while he filmed in Rome, where she was living with her family at the time, Sharon became interested in acting. 
and Bamer connected her to his agent, who signed her right away, pretty much taking one look at her and going, oh, yeah, this is a star. Kid, you're going to be in the picture. Did you get a look at those gams? <laughs> she was moved to Hollywood and began going on auditions. However, although absolutely naturally stunning, she was a total acting newbie and a little naive, and she had a lot to learn. She actually smoked her first cigarette on the set of a cigarette commercial. Just like Margot Robbie. <laughs> yeah. But something about her caught the attention of producer Marty Renzehoff, who snatched her up for his famous Starlet School, where big names like Anne Margaret had learned what it took to become a star. Sharon received a weekly salary and initially had every day filled with classes, voice lessons, acting lessons, dance, and exercise, because she had to stay fit. She began to get bit parts on Renzehoff Productions, like the TV show The Beverly Hillbillies, and soon she would reach another major turning point in her life, meeting Jay Sebring. I mean, as big as being on the Beverly Hillbillies? <laughs> Bigger. As, as big as rubbing elbows with Jed Clampett? <laughs> Bigger. Jay Sebring, whose real name was Thomas Cummer, was born in Michigan and had served for four years in the Navy in Korea. There, he learned how to cut hair, and when he ended his Navy tenure, he decided to fully rebrand himself as Jay Sebring and become a hairdresser to the stars. Obviously an ambitious gambit. Yeah, I mean, how many <laughs> how many job openings are there for hairstylists to the stars? Well, hairdresser to the stars was just not a thing at the time. Certainly not for a man, and certainly not for a straight man. Hey, be the change you want to see in the world, Jay. <laughs> Jay worked hard and was determined, and eventually he did succeed. He became the hairdresser to megastar Kirk Douglas, the actor. And after Douglas asked him to design his hairstyle for the film Spartacus, Jay soon gained widespread recognition and enough notoriety to own, open his own L.A. salon, Sebring International. The greatest stars in Hollywood have cummer hair. <laughs> you can see why he changed his name. Jay wasn't just in it for the fame. He really did have a passion for hair. He called himself a hair architect and pioneered salon practices that are not even thought about today. Um, back in the day, men didn't get shampoos and people didn't use portable handheld hair dryers. They only used those big helmets. The big like Mars Attacks heads. Yeah. People in Hollywood um, didn't really use these portable hair dryers until Jay brought them over from Europe. Uh, because he thought that men would not want to get their hair dried under those big bubbles. Big pink bubble. Mm -hmm. Jay wanted the experience of a haircut to be a luxury service, especially for men, not just something to cross off the honeydew list or something that your mom harasses you to do, as we know. <laughs> um, no, I'm not familiar with this phenomenon. <laughs> do people bother people about haircuts? Mm -hmm. It was this attitude that got him as far as he did in the in industry. Within a few years, he was styling all of the biggest male stars in Hollywood, from subtle hair pieces for Frank Sinatra, <laughs> to the signature styles of Steve McQueen and Warren Beatty. Um, have you seen uh, Frank's cameo in one of those Cannonball Run movies? I, I don't know how subtle the hair pieces are. <laughs> it was Jay's friendship with the latter of these actors, Warren Beatty, that helped inspire the Hal Ashby film Shampoo about a promiscuous straight male Hollywood hairdresser juggling relationships with multiple women. And that was actually uh, Carrie Fisher's first film role. So, trivia. 
Fantastic. (laughs) So Jay Sebring was a ladies' man in the tradition of a Bob Fosse. He was someone in a profession which at the time could be seen as feminine and perhaps to combat the image veered wildly in the other direction to prove his own masculinity. Well, it could be that or he's just raking in open opportunities everywhere he goes. It's being the one straight kid in the drama, drama club. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and that kid got a lot of action, I know, from my drama club days. Not from me, but I'm just saying. Yeah, that kid got a lot of mono. <laughs> yes, but I think it was a little bit of both. Um, he cut his way, so to speak, through a swath of Hollywood starlets and gorgeous models by the time he met Sharon Tate in 1964. But when he did, it was game over for him. Fellow hairdresser Jean Shakov had told Jay about Sharon, saying this new actress was possibly the most beautiful woman in the world. And so Jay was like, that sounds like a pretty good score to me. I mean, she's the hottest girl ever. Okay, I think I could do it. So he got it. This is the man who said, I'm going to just go become the (laughs) hairdresser to the stars. So Jay got another friend, Joe Hyams, to introduce them, and the pair got along right away. When Joe called Jay's house the next morning to see how the date went, Sharon answered. So Uh-oh. Joe got his answer. And soon the attractive couple were very much in love. Now, Jay had his quirks. He had sort of a morbidity about him. He loved speeding around in his race car through the streets of L.A., and he had bought the house that actress Jean Harlow's husband, Paul Byrne, had been found dead in, and this house was considered haunted, and he loved having a haunted house. He's kind of like, so often people will say about someone like a James Dean or a Kurt Cobain that they were always talking about, like, I'm going to die young or whatever. Yeah, sucking on a cigarette, like, yeah, I don't think I'm hanging around this crazy place too long. (laughs) I don't think he would voice it that way, but he was- This world can't contain a guy like me. He was always courting danger, let's say, because he also loved drugs and did a lot of different kinds, including the California Standard Pot and LSD, but also harder stuff like mescaline, cocaine, and speed. Some bigger-named stars would go to him to score if they didn't want to be seen with or associate with any shady dealers. Not that we're casting any aspersions on Kirk Douglas. No, but I think Steve McQueen did get cocaine from him. Hell yeah. (laughs) That's allegedly. I haven't written that down, but I think it was Steve McQueen. Uh, Jay's involvement in drugs would become an important factor in the early murder investigation later on. And uh, Jay was also into, well, there's, I mean, kink. He was into kink. Just broadly. All, <laughs> well, all of it. He, 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 feeder gainer fetish. No, 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 no. He had particular fetishes, mostly the use of S&M in the bedroom. He liked to, like, lightly whip and flog ladies, I think. Okay. He's not into, like, vor. No. He's more of, like, into, like, dom sub kind of stuff. But nothing, it didn't seem like anything too extreme. He just liked to slap ladies a little bit with, like, a paddle. Yeah, sure. I mean, just just some light paddling. Have fun, Jay. And uh, Sharon went along because, as Steve McQueen's wife, Neil, said, she was willing to do anything Jay asked her to do. But she really wasn't into Jay's sexual interests the way he was. It was sort of like a, well, you could spake me, I guess, sort of thing. But because of the so-called sordid nature of his fetishes, they would also become part of the investigation. 
1965, Sharon had a fateful meeting with up-and-coming director Roman Polanski in London while making her first big film, Eye of the Devil. And he was like, hey, you ever like not getting slapped during sex? (laughs) Well, Roman had just released the thriller Repulsion to great acclaim, and he was planning his next film. Attraction. Um, no. <laughs> now, it, it had been a difficult beginning for Roman. He was born into a Polish ghetto and witnessed his mother and father dragged off to concentration camps during the Jewish extermination in World War II. He survived the Holocaust and uh, nothing, no one in his family, uh, no one else in his family did. This is that part where his, like, his metal... Uh, manipulating powers woke up as, <laughs> as they were dragging him away from the gates? Well, maybe film manipulating powers. He began his career in 1962 with the Polish film Knife in the Water, which was nominated for the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar. So his first film nominated for an Oscar. Roman wasn't immediately impressed with Sharon after meeting her for the first time, despite her extraordinary beauty. But at their third dinner together, the pair bonded over their mutual interest in LSD. Yeah, I read a fascinating quote from Polanski. He said, she's hot, so what? (laughs) So Sharon said she thought tripping on LSD had been beneficial for her, like psychologically and emotionally. And Roman, who had tried acid three times before, thought the exact opposite. It was very horrible and traumatic. He did have a lot of horrible trauma in his past, so. Those are basically the two experiences people have to it. (laughs) Yes. So Sharon convinced him to give it another shot with her that night. After splitting some acid and a few weird moments at the start of their trip involving uh, Roman scaring Sharon by wearing a Frankenstein mask. Oh, come on. Not when the <laughs> not when the drugs are out, Roman. Eventually, the pair settled into it and they hooked up for the first time that night. There was one problem. Despite being physically apart for months during filming, Sharon was still in a relationship with Jay Sebring, and he had no idea she was cheating on him a continent away. Sharon was cast in Roman's next film, The Fearless Vampire Killers. And oh mid- my god, I haven't seen The Fearless Vampire Killers. He's also, he co-stars in it. It's very ballsy. Polanski does? Yes. Um, midway through the shoot, they had gotten back to hooking up, and... Um, They were even hitting the town publicly together in London. It was a different time before social media. I want to quote Karina Longworth in the podcast, You Must Remember Manson here, um, because she just explained it so beautifully and really go and listen to it. Um, I know it's weird to promote other podcasts, especially about the same subjects, but she gives a really interesting like old Hollywood frame of the whole thing. And I just always have to recommend it. So, quote, Sharon had found Jay Sebring in his world to be exciting, but Roman Polanski had an edge. Jay might have literally been a sadist, but in a sense, that was just play. He was also very loving and worshipful of Sharon. He wanted to marry her, and more importantly, he wanted to be a husband to her. In contrast, Roman Polanski loved women, but didn't seem to like them. He would boast to journalists that he'd never found a woman who was a woman who was his intellectual superior. I do dominate them, he'd say, and they like it. Of Sharon specifically, he admired her innate understanding that, as he put it, it's feminine to not try to compete with men and seem dominating. (laughs) In fact, with Polanski, Sharon played the role of what we'd call today the cool girl, the kind who allows boys to be boys and promises not to change or constrain their mate. In what seems to have been a fateful conversation, Sharon told Roman, I don't want to smother you. I just want to be with you. 
And Roman said, You know how I am. I screw around. Sharon said, I don't want to change you. And Roman believed her. He believed she really didn't care about his fidelity to her or lack thereof, that she only wanted him to be happy. He didn't understand why this was her way of reeling him in. And in fact, Sharon's refusal to assert what she really wanted early in their relationship would come back to hurt her later. So by April 1967, Sharon had moved into Roman's London apartment, and the pair were the perfect embodiment of swinging 60s stardom. They partied with the Beatles, they hung out at all the biggest clubs, threw the best parties, but Jay still didn't know what his beloved girlfriend was getting up to behind his back. Oh, wait, so they're hanging out with the Beatles, and she has a boyfriend? Yes. Oops. Yes, again, no one's going to tweet about it, you know? I feel bad for poor kinky Jay. I feel bad for him, too. And it's not, like, that extreme, you know? Like, he wasn't, like, d- doing some weird, like, foot... F- I mean, okay, no. He's he's just laying a, he's laying a spanking down. Well, as, as far as that stuff go, it's pretty normal in the range of things. He's not asking her to do something too extreme. So yeah, guys, I wouldn't call him spanking Jay or whatever. I said kinky Jay. Kinky Jay. He just likes, I wasn't, I wasn't using it as a bad thing. I'm not <laughs> yucking his yum. And listener, if you like spanking or being spanked. Uh, I, or feet, whatever. No judgment. Go with God. <laughs> or without. No judgment. Yeah, also no judgment. Sharon, feeling both guilty and swept up in her newfound romance, understood that Jay would find out eventually and decided to bite the bullet and tell him herself. She called him and told him, but he insisted that she was making the wrong decision and hopped on a plane to London to try and convince her face to face. He insisted on meeting the man she had so easily dropped him for. And um, if that was what he wanted, Sharon thought so be it. She invited Jay to meet her and Roman for lunch. It was all very 60s. And Jay took it like a champ. I mean, he extended a hand to Roman and said, I just wanted to meet you. This is the plot of white mischief. I mean, up until the (laughs) point that he doesn't murder Roman Polanski. (laughs) Eventually, Jay admitted defeat and perhaps decided that having Sharon in his life with another man was better than not having her at all. He loved her that much. By the end of the meal, he told Roman, I dig you, man. I dig you. And Jay became a part of the Tate Polanski inner circle, now Sharon's best friend instead of her lover. Many of the former couple's friends thought he was simply waiting in certainty that once Sharon and Roman's relationship flamed out, he would be there to pick up the pieces. I mean, he probably, except for how things obviously did end, uh, he, it's sad. It's, this is a deeply sad way to go about, you know, for your romantic pursuits or, or some would argue your life, but he the marriage probably is going to fall apart at some point, right? And he probably is going to be there to pick up the pieces. By the time we get to the end of this story, I mean, listen, I don't know what was in her mind or his mind or Roman Polanski's mind. This is just strictly my emotional read on it. I think they would have gotten back together probably in not too long. And I think they would have been very happy. So it's, it's sad how things went. Uh, He really wanted Sharon to realize that he had been the one all along, and he never even stopped wearing the school ring she gave him during their relationship to the yeah. day he died. That usually goes the other way, gender-wise. I know, which is, it's it's very sadly beautiful in a way. It also speaks of his slender fingers. Sure. <laughs> Maybe it was a thumb ring. 
The Fearless Vampire Killers eventually was released to little fanfare. Roman's next film, Rosemary's Baby, was the opposite, a massive, massive hit. We discussed it way back in episode, I think, 10 of this very podcast, where we talked about reportedly cursed films, so that kind of tells you that. Rosemary's Baby gave Roman a blank check to do whatever he wanted next in Hollywood, and often, what he wanted to do next was women other than Sharon. Well, <laughs> sure, he, but he established that in an honest way. Well, she knew it. He didn't flaunt his affairs, but he didn't hide them. And Sharon, much like Jay, seemed to feel that having Roman around and swallowing down the pain of his philandering was better than not having him at all. And in cool girl mode, she at least outwardly publicly accepted it. While he wrapped up Rosemary, she made Valley of the Dolls, an adaptation of Jacqueline Suzanne's best-selling novel that Sharon was convinced would finally make her a star. Her part, Jennifer, was that of an astounding beauty who wanted to be known as a serious actress. But she is forced to work in softcore pornography to pay for her husband's medical bills and then is diagnosed with breast cancer. It's like a very melodrama. That sounds really fun. Just before her scheduled mastectomy, Jennifer commits suicide, unwilling to, in her eyes, mangle the perfect body that felt like the only thing she had going for her. So instead of getting a mastectomy, she decided she would just rather not live. Again, melodrama. Obviously, Sharon felt a kinship with the tragic character, but the film uh, flopped critically upon release, though it scored a whole lot of money at the box office. But it wasn't going to make Sharon Tate be taken seriously as an actress, and she decided it was time to get out of her contract with Marty Ransahoff and pursue her own interests. She told Marty that she was retiring to get married, and he said he would agree to nix the contract, but she really had to retire and get married like she said. No compete. Right. And Sharon wasn't even engaged to Roman at the time, so this would be a feat. Because Roman will be tied down? (laughs) Well, just to get him to propose. I mean, maybe he doesn't want to. There was also the fact that if he agreed to it, she would be marrying a man who is publicly unfaithful to her. Was that what she actually wanted? At the end of the day, Sharon was always a bit of a traditionalist and homebody. She saw herself as a wife and mother someday, along with being a serious actress. But was this the man she wanted to be a wife to, wanted to be the father of her children? At dinner one evening, Roman commented to her, I'm sure you would like to get married. And she said, yeah, I would. And he replied, well, get married then. And and that was the proposal. They were engaged. And soon after, the pair got hitched at the Playboy Club in one of the most 60s celebrations I've ever seen pictures of. Um, Sure, past hors d'oeuvres in the grotto. (laughs) Listener, if you can, just look up Sharon Tate, Rowan Polanski, wedding pictures. Um, Sharon's in a mini dress and Roman is in an outfit that would have looked perfectly at home on the set of Austin Powers. I mean, I think it's, I think it's the basis for the Austin Powers, like main velvet suit at the reception. Roman told reporters that Sharon was actually not going to quit acting. He said, I want a hippie, not a housewife. Rosemary's baby's uh, producer, Robert Evans, who was played wonderfully by Matthew Good in the recent Godfather making of series The Offer, described the union from the outside perspective in his memoir. Quote, Just about the only really happily married couple I knew in Hollywood were Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. 
Coming from a child of hood of horror in Nazi-occupied Poland, Roman couldn't believe he was the husband of this milk-fed American beauty. Sharon's movie career was just beginning to heat up after Valley of the Dolls. In Roman's eyes, she was already the brightest star in the world. Around his gentle, sun-kissed bride, he was like a child who had seen his first Christmas tree light up. And that is not as extreme of a voice as done in the offer. (laughs) (laughs) You don't remember that character? Uh, I only saw the one episode. Oh, he stood out. Despite this idyllic marriage, things were sometimes difficult for Sharon within the marriage. Um, Roman hadn't magically become more faithful after slipping the wedding ring onto her finger. One famous story tells of Roman catcalling a woman walking down the street in L.A. from his Ferrari, yelling out a compliment for her beautiful arse. And the woman turned around, and to his obvious surprise, it was his wife. (laughs) (laughs) It was Sharon. It's like uh, the... You know, the guy looking at the, the guy walking with his girlfriend meme, mm-hmm. but then she's also the girl back there. Yes, it's like her twin. Another less funny story recounts Sharon and friends filing, uh, finding a pile of unlabeled videotapes in the house, and upon popping them in to see what was in on them, it was revealed that they were recordings of Roman and a woman who was very much not Sharon having sex, and uh, it was very humiliating. But, 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 but. So do we know if, did they have more discussions about this before they got married? Because the situation when they weren't married was, hey, just so you know. I think she was just very hopeful. Yeah, I think you have to bring that up because it's not because he's, he's, what he keeps seeming to say is, hey, just so you know, I fuck around. Yeah. I'm going to fuck around. Are you cool with me fucking around? I'm going to fuck around. I think the more, the longer she's with him and the more she puts down roots with him, the more she realizes she's not actually as groovy with this as most of their friends seem to be in their relationships. A little too groovy for Sharon Tate. While there for every disappointment and every heartbreak was Jay Sebring. Sharon would often be at home hanging out with Jay while Roman was out on the town picking young women up at clubs. Just before leaving for Rome to act in the film The Thirteen Chairs, and just before her fateful meeting with Charles Manson at Cielo Drive, which we talked about, Sharon found out she was pregnant. Now, it wasn't planned. Roman was ambivalent about fatherhood at all, considering his childhood traumas in the Holocaust. He didn't want to bring children into such a world, and that was understandable. She had an IUD, but fate intervened. She waited until she was in Europe to tell Roman, fearful he'd be angry with her. However, Sharon didn't wait at all to tell Jay Sebring, who was one of the first people to learn the news. Mm. Roman was actually much happier than she expected when when he heard the news. However, when she finished up the film and linked up with Roman in London in early summer 1969, now very visibly pregnant, Roman found himself realizing that, though she was lovelier to look at than ever, That affection was also accompanied by a, quote, total inability to make love to her. And he, quote, longed for the time when her body would return to normal. These are his words from his memoir. Meaning she won't let him or he's not interested? He's not interested. He doesn't find her sexually appealing being pregnant. Perhaps this terrible feeling from her husband pushed Sharon even closer to Jay. In July 1969, she booked passage home to L.A. on the Queen Elizabeth II. Roman was supposed to accompany her, but decided at the last minute to stay behind and wrap up some work. 
He drove her to the ship and they both cried as they said goodbye. Sharon upset that he would risk missing their child's birth. Roman overcome with the sense that something awful was about to happen. But not so overcome that he's not just going to stay and bang European models for another couple weeks. Writing of it later, he said, quote, A grotesque thought flashed through my mind. You'll never see her again. While walking off the ship and back to the car, I told myself to snap out of it. Forget I'd ever had such a morbid feeling. Have a ball. See some girls. Yep. So, yes. <laughs> In Roman's stead, he asked close friend Wojtek Frykowski to stay at the house with Sharon and keep an eye on her. Not in like a weird way, more of like a protective way. Because of his feeling. More that she was pregnant and he didn't want her to be there like totally alone. Um, he obviously Jay was going to be Jay there. A person, <laughs> well, I, I think he just wanted more people around. Wojciech was one of Roman's oldest friends from Poland and also a bit of a mess. So Roman seemed to also feel some sort of responsibility for the younger man. Maybe he was like, hey, do me this favor and trying to give him some initiative. Wojciech had house stat for the couple while both were shooting earlier that year. So this would be, just be a question of him sticking around to keep Sharon company. Sharon, however, was already sick of him. He was uh, seen as sort of a hanger-on and associated with some shady types. He used a variety of drugs from pot, LSD, and cocaine to newer chemicals on the scene. And he also wanted to get into drug dealing. At the time of his death, he was positioning himself to be the first distributor in L.A. of N MDA, now better known as a relation to the drug Molly. MDMA. A relation. MDA is called Sally, I believe. Oh. So it's it's like in the same wheelhouse. Her sister. Yes. Wojciech was also dating Abigail Folger, the heiress to the Folger coffee fortune, who spent her time in political and social activism. Abigail accompanied him during his house sitting at Cielo Drive earlier in 1969 and returned with him when Roman requested his presence at the home to keep Sharon company until he returned to London. Hey, Sharon, you guys are all out of beer, man. <laughs> you know, I would have done an accent for Roman, but I don't really know Polish accents. So I wasn't going to go with it. You're going to the store soon, man? This, this, the fridge is fucking empty over here. <laughs> That's definitely not a Polish accent. It's it's, uh, <laughs> it's it's in Eastern Europe yes. somewhere. Abigail would be there with Wojciech when the, the Manson family arrived one night in August, and she would only be 25 when she met her untimely end. Abigail graduated from Harvard University with an art history degree, and she was known as not just a socialite, but a smart cookie. She worked for the University of California Art Museum in Berkeley after her graduation, then left for New York, where she worked as a social worker for underprivileged youth. It was there in New York in 1968 where she met Wojciech Frykowski. After moving into uh, 10,050 Cielo Drive in April for the house-sitting gig, the relationship began to fall apart. Wojciech had brought Abigail into his world of drugs, perhaps as a means to better control her. In Helter Skelter, the official police report of the murders is shown to state that Wojciech, quote, had no means of support and lived off of Folger's fortune. So perhaps Wojciech uh, saw the writing on the wall about the relationship and wanted to keep her dependent on him. It's uncertain. I don't mean to speak ill of the dead, but it's a theory that may have been bandied about. So I just wanted to throw that out there. 
Just before her murder, Abigail attended her therapy appointment, and it was in her therapist's opinion that Abigail had decided at that session that she would finally leave Wojciech once and for all when Roman returned. But she never got the chance. The last victim of the Manson family in their first spree killing the weekend of August 8th, 1969, was the one that we know the least about, and he was actually chronologically the first victim, Stephen Parent. Steve was only 18 years old and had just graduated from Arroyo High School. He was a hi-fi bug and audio enthusiast. He even got arrested halfway through his freshman year of high school due to a petty radio theft. He was just that much of a nerd. So he's an AV club kid. Yeah. He loved taking speakers and radios and things like that apart to see how they work. Steve spent the next two years in juvie, and while there, he reportedly tested at near-genius level when it came to electronics. He had planned to attend Citrus Junior College that fall and was working two jobs to save money for the tuition. It was with that goal that he ended up at Cielo Drive the night of August 8th and would end up tragically losing his life before he got the opportunity to attend school. After the break, we'll finally get to the horrific Helter Skelter murders and how these five innocent people lost their lives to insanity on the night of August 8th, 1969. That's right. So get ready for some, well, I guess, come back on not too full or empty a stomach or um, just, just come back ready for some stuff. But totally neutral state. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. Welcome back. Uh, It is with both excitement and trepidation that I think we've come to this part of the um, pod. It's going to be pretty unpleasant, but this is, um, I mean, this is what we tell this story for, right? So Mm. uh, tell us, Carrie, what happened on that night in August 1969? Yes. So how did the weekend murder spree start and why were Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Wojciech Frykowski, Abigail Folger, and Stephen Parent the first victims? We left off with Linda Kasabian last episode receiving Bobby Beausoleil's call from jail after being nabbed for Gary Hinman's murder. So, I mean, Hinman was really the first victim. Yes, just not that weekend. But he really ki- kicked off what is known as Helter Skelter. Uh, Charlie w- felt cornered by the arrest to make something happen now or never because the threat of Bobby telling law enforcement about his and the family's involvement in the murder now loomed large over him. So it's like now it's full wartime mm-hmm. for the family. 
Exactly. Faced with the prospect of losing the control he had in the world over his cult if he was arrested in connection with the crime, he decided it was time to make Helter Skelter happen. So the family kicked off the conversation with an idea. One of them remembered seeing a movie about copycat murders freeing a killer from jail because the feds realized that they couldn't be committing the crimes after already being locked up. So maybe they could do something like that. Commit some murders to make it look like whoever had killed Gary Hinman was still, still out there and it wasn't Bobby. When uh, Charlie suggested maybe, you know, he should leave them, Charlie, so uh, they wouldn't be tied to the murder. Uh, they would, you know, be free without him and stuff. He got the response he was looking for. You know, no, Charlie, you can't go. We love you. We're nothing without you. We'll do anything necessary to keep the family together. It was exactly what he wanted to hear. He was just testing them. He was never going to leave. This is the he only considered thing he considered it. He considered it, but yes, it was if he were to do that, he would have to sacrifice this. And he didn't want to. Control over all these hippies on yes. this weird rant. Because it's all he had in the world. So Charlie ordered Squeaky Fromm to give Mary Brunner and Sar- Sandy Good some of the family's cash of stolen credit cards. Do we know how many people are hanging out at the ranch at this point? It wasn't the most ever I feel like somewhere between 10 and 20. And that's family members. I mean, there's other people at the ranch, you know, workers and stuff. The tickler. They're sorry, the pincher. (laughs) Yes. Well, that's the owner of the ranch, George Spahn. So um, Mary Brunner and Sandy Good were to take some of these stolen credit cards so they could go into town and pick up a few things. There are conflicting accounts about what that shopping list actually included. And uh, then Charlie herded the rest of the group together and announced officially, somberly, now is the time for Helter Skelter. I love or the wait. <clears throat> Now is the time for Helter Skelter. I love saying that somberly. Yes, he was very now serious. Now is the time for Helter Skelter. The family was then instructed to leave him alone because he had some planning to do. More bad news arrived to the ranch at 11 p.m. that night. Squeaky received a call saying Sandy and Mary had been arrested for using the stolen credit cards. And this was the last thing Charlie needed, yet more people in custody that could blab to the police and bring even more heat down on the family. Such a weird choice to send them to commit crimes then. Yeah. So he had to work on getting bail money for Sandy and Mary now, which was $1,200 total, more than they had to spend. The plan now comprised of both initiating copycat murders to get Bobby Beausoleil out of jail and getting money to pay for this bail. Well, okay, so you're going to steal some money while you're doing these murders. Two birds, one stone, right? Mm-hmm. Quote, events were spiraling out, out of control and Charlie was determined to take control back. There was no time to lose. It would happen tonight. I think the most surprising thing about this idea, the copycat murder idea, is that one of these people had read a book. Seen a movie, Sean. It was oh, a movie. Okay. No, we're back in. Charlie went to find Tex Watson. Besides Charlie, Tex was the only one who'd previously been to the house on Cielo. So another good sum, uh, summarization of everyone's mindset at this time comes from Jeff Gwynn's book, Manson. Quote, Charlie Manson imbued two core beliefs in his followers, that he must be obeyed, and that, with the exception of Charlie, the members of the family were the most special people on earth the family was meant to rule the earth after helter skelter it was ordained by the beatles and the bible through charlie they would reign benevolently and the world would become a far better place 
so they should and would do whatever was necessary to bring about that glorious era, and if that meant copycat killings to save Beausoleil, one of their own, then a few deaths, not murders, because the spirit was what counted, and you couldn't kill anyone's spirit, you just sent it on to a different place, were acceptable sacrifices to the eventual greater good. As Charlie prepared to talk to Tex around 11.30 on Friday night, August 8th, the family's discussion of copycat killings to save Bobby Beausoleil lent itself to Charlie's own larger vision. And that part of the vision, um, and part of that vision, like always, was attempting to keep his metaphorical fingerprints off the crime, so he wouldn't be linked to the murder and thus given the maximum sentence if found guilty due to his prior record. No, the, yeah, there were already some kind of half-assed uh, gestures toward framing the Black Panthers for the previous crime, is that right? Yes. So um, was the idea just to lean harder into that now? Yes, but also make sure that the police knew that this new crime was definitely related to that past crime. And so it couldn't be Bobby. That was the most important part. Uh, The Black Panthers had kind of taken a, a second priority once Bobby got arrested. So it was, time, it was time for Charlie to go back to his Dale Carnegie ways of showing the way to people and making his followers think his ideas were their own, using psychological manipulation. And because in the family, the women were taught to serve men, a man had to be in charge of the crime. And since it couldn't be Charlie, it would have to be Tex. He was big, tough, loyal, and desperate to be important and useful to Charlie. What Charlie didn't know was that Tex, along with Susan Atkins, a.k.a. Sadie, was doing harder drugs than pot and LSD on the side because they had taken some from the straight Satans. That day, Tex had... Oh, you guys want some silly, (laughs) silly drugs? (laughs) That day, Tex had taken acid as well as sniffing some methadrine he and Susan had stashed away. The high-intensity chemicals in his system confined violently with his ambition to be Charlie's chief lieutenant, and when asked by Charlie, Tex enthusiastically agreed to lead the copycat killings. Well, homie, yeah, 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 Charlie. Mm, Pretty much. And Charlie's like, that seems like normal behavior, okay. He's like, he's blinking and sniffing like, yeah, I'll I'll kill whoever you need. Mm Mm-hmm. So the next question was who to target, and Charlie had kind of a plan there as well. He wanted celebrity victims to create the most publicity possible and to force police to realize that Bobby Boslake couldn't have been the one to commit Gary Hinman's murder because the killers were obviously still out there. But, I mean, the problem... It's not smart. Yeah, because <laughs> if you're the police, one of the conclusions has to be, oh, it was committed by multiple people, which right. we already suspected, and, and so, so the rest of them are still out there. Yes, so... Let's what's question this guy harder. The, what's going to stop them from finding out who these people are, right? Well, um, it's going to be the perfect crime, of course. That's what everyone thinks. Charlie guided Tex to his own preferred destination. He wondered very pointedly if Tex might be thinking about the place on Cielo Drive that Terry Melcher lived at. Oh, I see that look in your eye, Tex. Great idea. I know just what you're thinking. (laughs) That's pretty much it. You make fun, but it's pretty much it. Even if Terry didn't still live there, whoever was living there would undoubtedly also be rich and famous to afford such a place. And they were going for maximum publicity. Tex thought it was a swell idea, and being the only other person in the family who knew how to get to Cielo from Spawn, it seemed like the perfect fit for him. Of course it's a great idea, Tex. You're a smart guy. Get out there. 
He just points him in the right direction, yes. Tex staggers Give him a off. little push. Tex and a few of the women would go to Cielo, kill everyone there, mark the place up with similar clues to what Bobby had left behind at Hinman's crime scene. Um, these would include stuff like bloody writing, uh, things like that. And of course, they would get some money because these would be rich people. Charlie said one of the women would know what to write on the walls to make it seem like it was a related crime. He then advised Tex to bring rope to tie up the victims, dark clothes to wear on the way and during the crime, clean clothes to change into after. And he also gave Tex the family's 22 caliber buntline gun, but cautioned it should only be used as a last resort. The knives were a much better option. This, so look, this isn't a smart, again, this isn't a smart person, mm-hmm. but he's not crazy. He's this is strategic. very methodical planning. Yes. Yes. He told people to say if they were caught, then it was just crazy Charlie Manson that we've been hanging out with and, and like degrade him because that way he wouldn't get the blame. There's a strategy to it for sure. It's the insane game. Yeah, but it didn't work because then he spent the rest of his stupid life behind bars. Maybe he also pl- spent the rest of his life playing the insane game, so much so that uh, who knows if he was actually insane or not by the end. He also suggested Tex bring bolt cutters to cut the phone lines first. Quote, he manipulated Tex so neatly that later on, when Tex claimed that Charlie ordered him to commit the murders and Charlie swore that they were Tex's and the family's idea, not his, both of them were telling a version of the truth. So Charlie picked the woman that would go with. Ruth Ann Morehouse later speculated that he'd chosen the expendables in her words. But really, he felt that each so of these... So Arnold's going, <laughs> Sly's going, Bruce Willis shows up for a day. But the opposite of that. <laughs> Just these, these addled, weak women, unfortunately. Um, Charlie felt that they each had something to contribute to the cause. Is she squeaky? <laughs> No, Squeaky didn't go. Susan, or Sadie, uh, she had been involved in the Hinman murder and knew what to do to try and make these murders look related or like the same killer. Patricia Krenwinkel, whose lack of social skills made some believe that she was actually cold and unfeeling, seemed like a good option to like be a killer. She was yeah, really just super shy. She seems like she'd kill someone. She's like, what? And he also chose Linda Kasabian because despite being brand new to the family, she had a valid driver's license for the getaway car. And apparently that was super important, even though he had just sent people out with a bunch of stolen credit cards. He's really not, he's not thinking clearly in what he prioritizes at this point. I think he's, he's, he's not, he's obviously not educated, but I think, I do think he's also kind of stupid. Yes. But again, there's a strategy here, whether it's, misguided you know that's up to you quote charlie knew that susan was capable of anything that pat believed she had no other option other than to obey him in all things and that linda wanted to impress the rest of the family and that was enough they all went off to get ready and tex and susan readied themselves in a way charlie certainly hadn't prescribed nor known about they snorted some meth Really? Mm-hmm. The drug made them edgier, more aggressive, and it was exactly what they were hoping for. And when did they take the acid? I mean, are they like tripping balls? He took, Tex took some that day as well as methadrine, and then this meth. I mean, he's not there. He's not doing great. No. That's an eight-hour trip, my friend. <laughs> 
As they were pulling out of the ranch, Charlie shouted to Susan, do something witchy, a reference to the bloody messages scrawled on the walls at Gary Hinman's home. The women didn't know yet that they were heading out to murder anyone. They might have thought it was just another creepy crawl. Only Tex knew the true aim of the evening. At 10,050 Cielo Drive, those in the house were settled in for the evening, were settled in for the night. It was historically oppressively hot that weekend, hitting the upper 90s and hundreds, and leaving even the richest denizens of LA society miserable. Maybe the heat contributed to the unrest felt across the city and at Spawn Ranch. Sharon Tate had spent most of the day in a makeshift bikini of a bra and panties. Over eight months pregnant with air conditioning, a thing of the future, Sharon was miserable, hot, upset, super, super pregnant. Just going through ice packs. (laughs) Just wanted to like rip off her skin probably. Roman had called earlier that day after continually delaying his return from London, all while his wife became more and more pregnant with their child. He was finally packed and ready to come back to the States, though, uh, and said in this call that he just had to wait till Monday to get his U.S. visa from the consulate, and then he'd be back on Tuesday. I just have two more dates. Kind of. (laughs) Soon after the call, it was nighttime in London, uh, Roman headed out to party it up before heading home to his pregnant wife. And that evening, he would pick up a girl at a club and hook up with her back at his place. Yeah, I know. not wrong, You you didn't have to tell that part of the story. I know. (laughs) Sharon didn't know these specifics, so she happily had a couple of girlfriends over for lunch, then took a nap. Wojciech Frykowski spent the afternoon with Jay Sebring's girlfriend visiting another friend of theirs, and Abigail Folger went to the psychiatrist, as I previously mentioned, um, having her sort of revelatory uh, revelatory um you know moment in in the therapy office about her relationship with Wojciech then she went out shopping for a bicycle scheduling it to be delivered hey we came back early they they're out of beer (laughs) when Sharon awoke um she asked her younger sister Debbie if they could reschedule Debbie sleeping over that night Debbie was supposed to that evening I think she was only around like 15 or so so she was a, a good amount younger than Sharon But um, Sharon was very tired, very pregnant, very hot, and she just didn't want to entertain anyone, I don't think. And she also broke a dinner date with a friend named Sheila Wells for similar reasons, saying that she and Jay would just spend the night in. So again, she's talking very much like you'd talk about your boyfriend or your husband. Like, me and Jay are just going to spend the night in. It's like, oh, Sheila's, I guess used to it it's just very it's a very interesting relationship I, it just feels to me like james corden in that uh, remember when james corden was an actor that we liked before he had that show um when james corden was in that doctor who episode as well the, it's definite friend zoning yeah Pe- but Pe- i think maybe she's even realizing that jay is a much better partner for her at this point he's and just, she might feel very trapped because she's so pregnant with this guy's other guy's child and yeah. married and you know it's this whole complicated thing Sharon, Jay, Wojciech, and Abigail went for a late dinner at L.A. Mexico, Mexico, L.A. Mexican joint El Coyote and returned to Cielo Drive at 10 p.m. or so. Wojciech and Abigail took some of the drug MDA. Uh, but interestingly, though, the drug, which we just talked about, it's related to the colloquial Molly. It, it's known to be one that, well, I, uh, I guess people enjoy being under the influence of while engaging in 
carnal relations. Yeah, like Molly. <laughs> so like drugs, basically. Yes. But it's symbolic of where Wojciech and Abigail were in their emotional lives at that point, where they took the drug and then they went to separate rooms to enjoy their highs like, by themselves without experiencing it together. Ah. Ab- and not in any like interesting or sexual way. Uh, Abigail retired to her bedroom and, and read a book. And Wojciech laid down on the living room couch and took a nap. And he went to rock- watch Rick and Morty. <laughs> Sharon and Jay went to Sharon's bedroom to talk. Uh, it just seems like physically there wasn't any funny business here. It's just where Sharon wanted to hang out. Maybe she saw Jay or Wojciech sleeping in the living room. I was like, no, just let's come to my room. Jay opened a beer, lit a joint, and the ex-couple sat on Sharon's bed and talked um, very deeply, it seems. We can only speculate what they were talking about. How do we know this happened? Um, a combination of things. Um some of it makes sense from later testimony from the killers, unfortunately. And some was just like they could tell what order things had happened in. So now we get to the murders. Trigger warning, of course, for the description of the crime. It's very horrific. There's a pregnant woman involved. It's, it's awful. So you're, you're free to skip ahead. And also some grain of salt on some of this, I would yes, guess. Because yes, there is conflicting accounts, and I tried to note that in places, but most of, of what we know comes from the killers at this point. So yeah, who we, knows who's being honest? We just have these drug-addled hippies who... And some of them may feel uh, an intense amount of guilt now and are trying to tell the truth, and some of them may not have ever felt that way and we're telling their own version. So right. this is this is the version that people somewhat agree on. Rudy Altabelli, the actual owner of 10,050 Cielo Drive, had installed William Gerritsen in the Cielo Drive guest house where Rudy usually lived to take care of the property while Rudy was out of the country. That's not the teenager. No, he's um he's young, but he's not a teenager. He's like in his 20s. William was paid $35 a week to maintain the grounds with room and board covered because he was living in the guest house. And he was home that evening and was surprised to receive a knock at the guest house door around 11.45 p.m. It was Steve Parent, a kid that he had picked up hitchhiking a few weeks earlier. They had had a nice chat. Um, when he picked Stephen up, he had brought him back to CLO and said, hey, drop by anytime for a visit. And Stephen, seeing the house and, you know, kind of the way that he thought this guy was living, figured that William had money. So Stephen had come by to try and sell William his clock radio, (laughs) all to raise more funds for his schooling in the fall, like every single dollar. And we know this kid needs every, he loves every clock he can get. So uh, this is a real sacrifice. Mm Mm-hmm. William wasn't really interested. This was weird, but he humored Steve. Um, Steve plugged in the radio. He set it for the current time to demonstrate how it worked. Oh, this is sad. This is sad, Steve. You're trying too hard. Afterward, William politely told Stephen that he didn't want the radio, but he offered him a beer as consolation. Like, well, but you know, if you want a beer, Stephen drank it. He chatted with William. He called a friend who wanted him to come by afterward to uh, help set up a stereo system. And so Stephen went to go and he unplugged the clock radio, which he took with him. And it was now 12.15 a.m. And this is pretty much how we have a time frame of what happens next. 
After a few minutes, Steve was back in his car, slowly guiding it back down the house's long, curving driveway. He stopped at the closed gate to roll down his window and push the button to open it. It was an electronic gate. And poor Stephen was truly at the worst place at the worst possible time. After he opened the window, Tex emerged from the shadows with a knife in his hand, causing Stephen to jump in uh, surprise. And Steve managed to say, please, please don't hurt me. I'm your friend. I won't tell. But it didn't matter. Tex slashed the teenager on the arm with the knife and then ignoring Charlie's instructions, took out the gun and shot Stephen four times at point blank range. Four times? Mm-hmm. Wasn't it like a rifle? It's a bunt line, a 22 caliber bunt line. Oh, okay. That probably is a pistol. Stephen fell dead across the front seat of the car, still parked in front of the gate. Tex thought for a moment about how the flashes from the gunshots had reflected off of Steve's glasses, then reached into the car to put it in neutral, pushing it a short way back down the driveway and leaving it parked there. That's just drugged out Tex yes, stuff? Yes, it's like, whoa, that's wild, man, kind of stuff. He then whispered to Susan, Pat, and Linda to come out and follow him to the main house. The foursome crept down the driveway, marveling at the large home and the Christmas lights still twinkling on its exterior. I can't imagine, and I'm, I'm not saying this out of sympathy for them uh, in any way, but I can't imagine what this experience is like for Tex and for Susan. Yeah, it's... Just out of their heads out on of their drugs. Heads. And they're not hardened murderers. They're just weird, crazy hippies. Yeah, but Te- Tex does a lot here. No one in the house, nor William Gerritsen in the guest cottage, had heard the shots because how the house was situated kind of in a valley area, the acoustics just totally swallowed up the sound. That's incredible. Yeah. As the group neared the house, Tex told Linda to go around back and see if there was an unlocked door or window they could sneak into. Linda walked out of Tex's sight and stayed there for a few moments, not actually really looking After Steve's murder, which was a shock to her, she didn't realize this was going to happen, she was getting cold feet about the whole situation, and she's only been part of the family for a month. Oh, this is a big step up from just doing acid in the desert. Yeah. She returned to Tex and lied that everything was shut tight, there's nothing open and back, sorry. But no matter. Unfortunately, it was so hot that windows were open all around, including a window to the entry hall beside the front door, which was... uh, clearly open behind a screen. Tex used a knife to slit into the screen and pulled it loose, then told Linda to go back to the gate and keep watch in case anyone had heard the gunshots and came looking to see what had happened. Meanwhile, he's wrenching a metal screen out of a window. (laughs) He climbed through the window and motioned Susan and Pat to follow, and Linda went back to the gate. Now, if you'll remember, they, they have certain skills in breaking into homes, or at least sneaking into homes and sneaking around them. Creepy crawling. Mm-hmm. So using these creepy crawl skills, Tex, Susan, and Pat crept through the entry hall into the living room, spotting Wojciech Frykowski sleeping on the couch. Tex whispered Susan to go check the rest of the place and see who might be there. Wojciech was awoken by the talking, and he sort of mumbled like, oh, beer. <laughs> he goes, what time is it? And then seeing Tex, who are you? What do you want? And in response, Tex first kicked Wojciech in the head, stunning him. And then said, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. Which is a killer line. Um, For sure, but he he also probably believed it at the time. Yes, he probably believed he was the actual devil. 
Frakowski tried to respond, but Tex said, another word and you're dead. Susan continued on down the hall, and Pat went to Linda outside, having realized she'd forgotten a knife. Oopsie doopsie. Uh-oh. She borrowed Linda's and returned to Tex in the living room. Susan, meanwhile, had reached the guest bedroom where Abigail uh, laid on her bed reading. Abigail saw Susan in the open doorway and looked up and smiled at Susan. Abigail was used to random people coming and going from the house at all hours, and a lot of people she didn't know. They were Sharon's friends or Wojciech's friends. Sounds like people in the 60s in LA were just yes. walking in and out of yes. big houses all the time. Yes. So at first, Susan's presence just didn't concern her. Susan smiled back and gave a little wave, and Abigail waved back and then just went back to reading her book. Susan snuck on down the hall and saw Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring sitting on Sharon's bed talking. And they were so deep in conversation and looked so serious that neither of them spotted the stranger. So that's kind of how we know that they had been having this like sort of long, deep conversation. Susan returned to the living room, waving at Abigail a second time on her way. And then she told Tex who she had seen. Tex told her to bring them to him. So Susan went back to the guest bedroom, brandishing her knife at the now terrified Abigail, who realized, oh no, this is not a friend, and ordered Abigail to go into the living room where Pat held her at knife point. Susan then went to the main bedroom to get Sharon and Jay. She told them, come with me, don't say a word or you're dead. Frightened, they got up and walked ahead of her into the living room. She's one little girl with a knife, right? I mean, they maybe could have gone after her. And should have. Well, we'll see how that goes. Upon seeing Tex and Pat waiting, Sharon hesitated, didn't want to go any further, and Tex roughly grabbed her arm and dragged her forward. Though Tex had rope, he told Susan to tie Wojciech's hands behind him with a towel, which she did the best she could, and he then used the rope to tie up Jay's hands instead. When Jay protested that Tex was being too rough, Tex repeated, one more word and you're dead. Wojciech, in pain from being kicked in the head and afraid, added uh, after that, he means it. Tex looped the rope around Jay's neck and threw the other end over a beam in the ceiling, tying it around Sharon's neck. So they're both connected to this rope that is over a beam. And sort of noosed. Yes. They're not tight or anything. They're not right. actually hanging, but they're connected. She, um, Sharon began to cry. Tex snarled at her to shut up. Jay, defending the only woman he had ever loved, who he clearly, to my eyes, uh, still did love, protested to Tex, can't you see she's pregnant? And Tex shot him in the stomach. Jay, in horrific pain, collapsed on the living room rug. Sharon, terrified, screamed and sobbed even harder. Tex ignored this and demanded, I want all the money you've got here. Abigail said she had some money back in her room. Susan marched her there, and Abigail retrieved 70 bucks out of her pocketbook. Tex, disgusted with the meager haul, said, You mean that's all you've got? And Sharon said that they didn't have any more in the house, but if they're given time, they would get some. He thought she was stalling. Tex told Sharon, You know I'm not kidding. And she replied, I know. Tex was getting even angrier, uh, knowing that a major part of this murder was to obtain money for Mary and Sandy's bail. These were rich people. Why didn't they have any cash? They're supposed to have all this cash lying around. Right, but he has entered with the intention of killing everyone in this house, right? Yes. 
He didn't want to disappoint Charlie. As Tex was going through all of this in his mind, um, Jay groaned in pain on the floor. Tex had had enough. He crouched over Jay and began to stab him over and over and over until Jay was finally still enough that Tex thought he was dead. Sharon and Abigail, forced to watch the entire assault, screamed and cried throughout. When he was finished, one of the women asked, What are you going to do with us? His reply was blunt. You're all going to die. Sharon and Abigail attempted to beg for their lives. Wojciech, who had been rendered semi-conscious from the kick to his head, heard this and realized it was now or never. He began to tug his hands free of the knotted towel, which was not super secure because it was a towel. Tex, frustrated, yelled to Susan, kill him. And she tried, but Wojciech had gotten his hands loose and the larger man was grappling with her. The two of them rolling around on the floor. He's like yanking at her long hair and she's blindly flinging around her knife. She's making contact with his legs a few times, stabbing him. She loses the knife somewhere. See, if if Jay and Sharon had done this in the bedroom. Yeah, but then they would have come out. I mean, maybe they're only. And they would have had a knife. And there would have been one less... uh, Tex had a gun, though. But there's one less attacker. It's a dark room. I think they were probably in such shock that they just didn't know what to do. Totally. But but it's a good lesson learned, maybe. Go after the little girl with the knife. She might stab you. You're probably not going to die. Outside, Linda heard Wojciech's screams and instinctually began to walk back toward the house, stopping just in front of the entrance. She was still in such shock she couldn't make herself go any further. Tex tried to help Susan finish off Wojciech while Sharon and Abigail watched helplessly with Pat holding them at knife point. Jay's already dead at this point. Tex shot at Wojciech and pistol whipped him with the grip of the, grip of the buntline gun. Despite multiple severe head injuries, multiple bullets in his body at this point because he was shot and multiple stab wounds, Wojciech staggered to his feet and managed to stumble out onto the lawn desperate to escape. Wojciech's I mean, a boss. I take back everything I said about Wojciech. He, he had a will to live, for sure. Tex leapt on him in front of the house, beating and stabbing him until the man finally went still. There was just nothing he can do. Linda saw the whole horrific scene, and it was way too much. She wasn't built for this. She saw Susan through the open front door and yelled, Please make it stop. People are coming. Um, it was the only thing she could think of that might make this nightmare end. But Susan said, well, there's nothing I can do. And that was enough for Linda. She ran back down the driveway, climbed over the fence, and stopped down the hill where the family's car had been parked. She didn't want any part of this. In all the commotion, Abigail broke away from Pat, fleeing out across the lawn. Pat ran after her and managed to tackle her, then stabbed Abigail several times. Pat didn't know if she had sealed the deal, so she called Tex over to check if Abigail was dead. He said he'd make sure and directed Pat to go to the back house, which was the guest cottage, and kill whoever was there. Pat, shaking, was equally afraid to follow Tex's orders and to not do so. But you didn't mention the owner of the house among the victims. Well, the caretaker. Well, like Linda, Pat put up a front. She walked down the back alley between the main house and guest house until she was out of sight, waited a few moments, and returned. Uh, It doesn't seem like she even looked in the window or anything. But she told Tex that she had, and there was no one in the back house. So these were the only people. 
If she had, the guy probably would have offered her a beer. He doesn't know what's going on. Well, Tex believed her, and so William Gerritsen was spared. That is unbelievable. The cops thought so, too, and we'll talk about that later. Oh, no. In the meantime, Tex had stabbed Abigail several more times to ensure the deed was done. Later, Tex would write that Abigail had actually been alive when Pat had finished with her, and she had whispered to him, I give up. You've got me just before he delivered the fatal blow. Three residents of Cielo Drive were now dead. To the family's knowledge, only the pregnant Sharon Tate remained. Susan was still guarding her beside the living room sofa. Tex and Pat returned to the living room, and Sharon began to beg. Not for her own life. (sighs) So sad. Not for her own life, but that of her unborn child's. You can take me with you, she pleaded, and after my baby's born, you can kill me. Just let my baby live. But Charlie hadn't said anything about kidnapping or a baby or postponing murders or taking a hostage. They didn't know what to do in this situation. But Charlie had said murder, maximum publicity, right away. Multiple versions of the rest of the story exist as to who did what. But the one given in Manson states that Susan held Sharon while Tex stabbed her to death. And Sharon cried for her mother as she died. <sighs> When all was said and done, (laughs) it's so sad. Uh, When all was said and done, the family members surveyed the scene. There were four dead bodies, but was it gruesome enough for what they were going for? Not yet. Nothing witchy yet. Mm -hmm. They set about staging more horror, again, for maximum shock value. The nylon rope was tightened around Jay and Sharon's necks, still looped over the ceiling beam between them. They were laying on the floor, but people, they wondered... Later, if there was like some sort of weird metaphor that they were trying to make, like these two are connected, but I don't think the family had any sense of who they were to each other. So no, and I, I don't think they were. I mean, I don't think they were that clever or creative. I think they were just doing random shit. They were. Um, Wojciech's face was mutilated with a knife beyond recognition, and Abigail's once white nightgown was covered in gore to the point where it looked like it was a different color. Tex grabbed the $70, at least he had something, and then remembered that Charlie had wanted them to write something witchy in blood to help connect the crime to Gary Hinman's and prove that Bobby couldn't have committed it. And that's for a wedding, right? It's something old, something (laughs) new, something witchy. Only our wedding. He ordered Susan to do the deed, so she dipped a towel in Sharon's blood and carefully wrote the word PIG in all caps outside the front door, similar to political piggies. That was written the only on the caref- wall at Gary Hinman's. The only careful writing that's <laughs> ever been done in human blood. Yes. Tex thought they had done a good job and felt they hadn't left too much evidence behind. Even so, now covered in blood, he pressed the button to the gate with his index finger to open it, not wanting to climb back over the wall again. And the trio walked through and met Linda back at the car. The group chatted as they left the scene. Tex... Susan told Tex that she'd somehow lost her knife at the house. and Silly me. He shouted at her in anger. Pat complained that her hand ached while stabbing Abigail. Her knife kept hitting bone, hurting her hand with the impact. Oh, poor thing. Mm -hmm. All of them berated Linda for fleeing. The trio removed their bloody clothes and put on the clean items they had brought. Linda bundled the evidence together and tossed the clothes out of the car down a steep slope by the side of the road. 
a liver a little further down tex had linda do the same with the remaining knives and then the gun which had pieces missing from the grip from tex's assault of Wojciech. this only goes for the evidence that had made it off the property yes it was decided that they would not return to the scene to try and recover Susan's knife or the gun grip fragments. After a few miles, Tex pulled onto a side street and parked near a house that had a hose in the front yard. The group gathered around the hose and washed away the blood from their hands, arms, and faces. In someone's front yard? Mm-hmm. It was about 1 a.m., and though they tried to be quiet, the home's owner, Rudolph Weber, heard people in his, har- his yard and went out to see who it was. Tex explained to Weber that they had been walking and just wanted a drink. I think most of the blood had been washed away by this point. But the car was parked right behind them, so he didn't believe that they were just taking a walk. (laughs) Weber approached them. The engine's still running. (laughs) Yes, yes. Weber approached them, uh, so the group fled back to the car and sped away, but not before the man was able to note down their license plate number, GYY435. Tex did them no favors by yelling, Creepy Crawl! When they returned back to Spawn Ranch, Charlie was waiting for their return with the fam- with family member Nancy Pittman. Quote, his first question was why they were back so soon. Tex told him it had gotten messy, but everybody at Cielo was dead. Susan, eager as always for praise, bragged to Charlie that she had killed for him, and Charlie replied that she had done it for herself. Then Charlie wanted to know just how much money they'd gotten and was angry that the take was just $70. They should have gone into every house on Cielo, he snarled. Charlie asked how they'd left the murder site looking. Was it just like Gary Hinman's house? Did they write witchy words? The answers didn't satisfy him. No, it was just like Gary Hinman's. We left a murder weapon behind. So shockingly, he hopped into the car and headed over to Cielo to see the murder scene for himself. Classic. It's always a great idea to revisit the scene of the crime. Now, it's a big misconception that Charlie Manson committed these murders with his own hand and was there. Partly, I think, because he does go to the crime scene before the crime is discovered. Inexplicably. Yes. Um, Like, let me go make sure. I know I've divorced myself a little bit from this murder. Let me make sure my boot prints are there. Quote, Charlie entered the house and wiped surfaces to eliminate stray fingerprints. He moved some things around, hauling the the two steamer trunks that had been delivered earlier in the day out into the hall and tossed a towel over Jay Sebring's head. He placed in plain sight a pair of eyeglasses he found somewhere. There was a large American flag on one side of the living room, and Charlie draped it theatrically over the sofa near Sharon Tate's crumpled, bloody body. The flag prominently displayed next to a pregnant woman's corpse would surely shock investigators and get lots of media attention. See, this is the strategy. It's so weird, though, because it's not one of the, like, most famous details of the crime. Well, if you've ever seen a picture of the crime scene, it is. It's very prominent. Charlie was so preoccupied with perfectly setting the scene of the slaughter that he didn't comb the house for cash, credit cards, or other valuables. He also didn't check the guest cottage, which he knew was there because he had seen Rudy Altabelli there. When he felt that everything in the main house looked just right, he returned to spawn and went to bed. Dawn wasn't far away. I can't believe Rudy's just still in his guest house. William Gerritsen. Rudy's not there. It's the caretaker. Oh, okay. Yeah, but But yes, and there's... We'll talk about it. There's a lot of controversy over whether William Gerritsen had just genuinely no clue what was going on, or he had heard or seen something and was hiding and maybe didn't want to cop to that because... That could be seen as cowardly, that he didn't go out and help. But again, 
I think he did what was best because what what can you do with a guy with a gun? If you know a guy has a gun, I mean, there's not much you can do. Yeah, correct. Did he hear the gunshots? <sighs> probably not. If no one in the house did, probably not. But people are running onto the lawn and getting murdered. <laughs> so it's more likely he saw or heard that. But again, if you see that, well, what are you going to do? Oh, and uh, I did well, not he mention. Probably has a phone in the guest house. I did not mention the phone lines were cut, um, with, like Charlie had with to... the bolt cutters. Yeah, I, I meant to mention that. Uh, Tex had cut the the phone lines, and it had been right after Stephen had made that call to his friend. Um, it was after that that Tex arrived and cut the phone lines. So. William couldn't have called even if he had tried. I forgot that Charlie had incepted that into Texas head. Yeah. So next week we'll discuss the reaction to the murders after they were discovered the next morning. Charlie's decision to continue the killing spree after the crime wasn't immediately connected to Gary Hinman's murder. Spoiler alert. The deaths of Rosemary and Lino LaBianca. And hopefully we'll see. I don't. I don't want to make this so many more episodes, but hopefully next week we'll also get to an overview of the capture of the family and the trial that resulted in one of that resulted from one of the most infamous crimes of the '60s, perhaps only behind the assassinations of JFK, RFK, and MLK. Um, yeah, I can't wait to watch you bring this home, uh, and I think you could do it next week if you want to. If we can get to the Labiancas before the break. There's so much interesting stuff with this trial, but I think it's it's not as expansive as, say, with like the Lizzie Borden trial versus the lead up to it. Whereas with Lizzie Borden, it was like so much speculation. We don't know all of the backstory. This we have all of the backstory and that's obviously always interesting. So right. I'm going to try and wrap it up next week. As a reminder, Lizzie Borden did kill both of her parents with an axe. Allegedly. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now. In following with prior episodes in this series, no news this week, but we did want to showcase a special message left for us by a listener at our Google Voice number. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail and have your message featured on the show, call us at 203-666-5529. Or you can say, don't play it on the show. We'd still like to hear from you. Yeah, absolutely we would. And um, I thought this one was really nice. So uh, It, it let's... was. It, it it always brightens our day. I mean, I can't emphasize that enough whenever we hear from you guys. Hi, Carrie Ann. Hi, Sean. I am a long-time listener. I've been listening for probably two years now. Um, you guys got me through door dashing, all that stuff. You guys are awesome. I've been enjoying 
uh, everything you guys do. I think I've listened to almost every episode, but just wanted to send out my appreciation to you guys. You guys are awesome, and keep doing what you do. It's been great. Bye. Well, well, as um, Avid, did she say her name? I don't know if she said... Well, they I don't know if they said their name um, if, if you can write back and say who you are we want to know uh, who to thank but um, thank you so much yes and um, you know we're big fans as well because certainly DoorDash plays a big part in our lives around that's gone around to us here. through the uh, last couple of years so thank you so much it's awesome that you know listening to us can bring some kind of interest to your your day-to-day work um we do the same thing listening to podcasts so it means a lot that we can be that for other people and listening for two years is amazing i can't even believe we've been around for that long um thank you so much for sticking with us and supporting us i mean we do this show for you guys we'd be talking about this stuff anyway but you know doing the show is is really special when we get to connect with people and um Thank you so much for listening and for reaching out. Yeah, thank you. uh, Thank you. And that's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And special thanks to those of you already joining us on our top couple of Patreon tiers. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Aussie, Sean Downs, Ryan, Enrique, Derek, and Ira. Thank you, guys. We love you all very much. Gosh, uh, so many of those names have been there for so long. Uh, and uh, it means the world to us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. See you next Thursday. Show crew by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com. <laughs> <laughs>